Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas Association of Counties. Local government is great, not because it's government, because it's local and connected to the people. Learn more at texascountiesdeliver.org. And VRBO. Vacation rental leader VRBO reports some Texas rentals are making up to $5,400 per month. Read more on tribtalk.org. Texas Talking Hi, I'm Debbie Hyatt, editor of the Austin American Statesman. I said this week I was leaving the paper after 28 years, and I end up on TribCast? Desperate times. Seriously, enjoy the show and your wonderful host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Debbie. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, August 29th with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Ringing endorsement. Uh, it's, it's all the cheese I'm eating. Yes, we can talk about that later. Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Uh, higher ed reporter Shannon Najmabadi. Thanks for having me. And in just a few minutes, well, we'll what, be what choice did we Wait. have? You have a big story this week. <laughs> <laughs> she had a couple of big stories this week. Uh, and uh, later, we'll be joined by our breaking news and civil courts reporter Emma Pladoff. Uh, we'll also be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please send them our way. Yeah, Shannon had a range of stories, but the first one I actually want to talk about is a story from last week, and that uh, was a story about the new UT system chancellor. So basically, Shannon, start by telling us a little bit more about James Milliken, our uh, brand new University of Texas system chancellor. So Mr. Milliken, he goes by JB, James B. Milliken. He was officially appointed chancellor of the UT system on Monday. It wasn't really a surprise because he was named the sole finalist three weeks ago. But um, he he's a very experienced higher education administrator. He's led public university systems in three states. He, in a lot of ways, is kind of um, like the traditional, non-traditional pick. Non-traditional in the sense that he doesn't really have a lot of ties to the Texas legislature. And I think when he was announced... Some of us were like, you know, Google. who is Who's this guy? Yeah. How do I spell his name? Um, but he also, you know, he has a lot of experience leading edu- uh, leading higher education systems. So as one one of his former colleagues told me, like, he's going to come into this position and he's not going to be learning it on the job. He knows how to be a chancellor. Um, Which is different from the last couple of chancellors, right? The well, last chancellor right. knew, knew how to hunt the, down the last Osama chancellor bin Laden. Had no experience in higher ed, higher ed a Navy SEAL, a heart surgeon. Right. right. I mean, you've had right. people who have not come out of that traditional administrative right chain right right and I guess um, the thing that strikes me about that is that well I guess the thing that strikes me about his his press conference that he like a very informal press conference game he gave Monday is that he's very well aware of the kind of job a chancellor job is which is that it's ultimately like a really political job you know he spent so much time talking to us about his experience dealing with um, governor's office and legislatures in the past and um, and I think he's very aware of those kinds of challenges. Well, I'm I'm very interested in that aspect, particularly because, as you said, this, is, especially in Texas, this has been a highly political job, and basically every chancellor we've had has, you know, stepped into it in some way or another, or had to, you know, work on their relationship with the governor. So you said he knows what's in store for him, but are there experiences in his past where he's really had to, like, tangle with the political system? Yeah. <laughs> so um, you mentioned a story we wrote last week. It was kind of like a profile about him that we didn't get to talk to him for really <laughs> so I ended up meaning he did to, not respond to well he you know yeah. he responded a little bit over email but I didn't right. get to sit down and ask him all the questions I wanted to um so what I did instead is I reached out to a ton of his former colleagues you know like former board members 
uh, faculty senate members, like anyone that I thought might have worked with him. And uh, my sense that I got is that his time at Nebraska, where he spent 10 years at as president, which is basically the chancellor position there, he uh, seemed to be pretty effective at dealing with the governor. I think he had a pretty good relationship with the governor, actually, and negotiated a temporary tuition freeze that lasted a couple of years. One of the board members, I think he's the vice chair of the board right now, he said that any you know, increases that came were predictable because he worked so fluidly with the governor. Um, CUNY. <laughs> a tougher system to navigate, probably. Yeah, yeah, right. So, you and know, he you was there for how long? Four years. Four years. It's almost the exact same timeline as um, chan former Chancellor McRaven at UT. Hmm. So, <laughs> when I started looking into the CUNY system, I was just thinking, you know, the UT system isn't that political in comparison because <laughs> CUNY is based in New York City, funded largely by the state of New York. Uh, Mayor of New York, Governor of New York had this long feud, both Democrats. Um, they're, I don't think. I think it's fair to say they have a feud. <laughs> also, the governing board, so this is like CUNY's version of the Board of Regents. They are majority appointed by the governor and partly appointed by the mayor. So you have the same kind of divergence in uh, authorities, ultimate authorities. So um, he comes into that environment. And then within his four years, almost the entire board of trustees that oversees him turns over. So there are 17 board members in total, two ex officio members. By the end of his time, that he by the time that he announces he's going to step down, only two of those people that had originally chosen him remained. Whoa. It's very difficult, you know, like a lot of new relationships to navigate. Um, a lot of the new board members, trustee members, are um, appointed by Cuomo. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Evan, obviously, you're someone who has paid a lot of close attention to the state's higher education system. What's in store for him? I mean, you know, what what landmines does he have to be careful not to step? Well, on? the the political aspect of this is not to be underestimated. I think what what Shannon has said about him understanding the politics, having dealt with governor's offices and legislatures before, is is both true and important. Mm -hmm. But he cuts against the grain in terms of chancellors appointed by, of late. You know, John Sharp came out of politics. Mm -hmm. Right. Brian McCall came out of politics. Robert right. Duncan came out of politics. How'd that work out for him, yeah. by the, the way? Late, the late, great the late Robert, Robert Duncan. Duncan. <laughs> Um, Lee Jackson who was at North Texas. That used to be the model, right? You know, you've mm -hmm. got people who have been appointed to these positions who have direct experience in politics because that really is the job. The job is a political job. Mm -hmm. um, you're not the chief academic officer. You're not really the chief fundraising officer. You're the person who is running, uh, blocking and tackling at well, one thing about the legislature. The, one thing about the politicians, though, the Duncans and the Sharps and the McCalls, is that those guys, Monfort before Duncan, Monfort, right, those guys were recruited example. in large measure because they could raise money. Right. Mm -hmm. Right, but at the same time, they also understood the way a, a hearing right. works, and they understood right. how to deal with the, the three people in charge, governor, lieutenant, governor, speaker. They understand right. how to deal with chairman. <clears throat> the, the, one of the big issues, maybe the big issue right now for higher ed in Texas is, and it's an ever-thus issue, is, is the economics of the whole thing. You know, are they going to have enough money as appropriated by the legislature, or are they going to have enough latitude to raise tuition or both mm -hmm. to fund what is a fast-growing and dynamically changing population of higher ed students? The needs far outstrip the resources available. They always have. They never have outstripped them more than now. We brag about how our population is increasing and how everybody wants to come here, but then there's a question of whether we're dedicating enough in the way of resources to, mm -hmm. to educate people pre-K through 12 and then in higher ed. And so the chancellor of the University of Texas system comes in and immediately has to confront a legislature that under normal circumstances is hostile to spending money mm -hmm. that they don't have to spend. But right. in a post-Harvey budget especially, right. times are tight, 
money is not available, and how do you integrate yourself into this conversation or ingratiate yourself with these guys to be able to ensure that higher ed gets what it, it needs? That's going to be the big, mm-hmm. you know, job for him. Well, Nebraska is not a, Nebraska yeah. is not really a big uh, a spendy state, but everybody assumes that New York is a little bit more loose with its uh, uh, purse re- resources, purse strings. Yeah, you have a Democratic governor. Mm-hmm. You had a different environment in Q- at CUNY than you did certainly or uh, will have here at, at, at UT. And so that's really going to be the ultimate question. Can this guy come in, work the legislature, work the levers, mm-hmm. and right. get what higher ed needs, right? Right. It's interesting just, that, that McRaven is you know on his way out because, Shannon, you had a really smart story last week about all this uh, sort of list of similarities right now between Milliken and McRaven. Well, yeah, there were a lot of small similarities. You know, they both, I think it was November and December, they both said that, you know, I intend to retire at the end of the academic year. I have some health problems that have caused me to reflect on what I want to do with my life. There are things like that that just kind of were eerily similar. Um, same length of time they spent at the universities, and both of them, I think I said this in the story, they faced on like political headwinds, though when they announced they'd retire, they didn't cite Some political those. headwinds, such <laughs> yeah. a gentle phrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to your point about the politics and the higher, the economics of it being really important, on Monday he made a kind of a big big show of saying that he'd already talked to the governor, they had a good conversation, he looked forward to working with the legislature, he was going to do what he could to get um, adequate funding for the system as much as he could um, through the legislative process. And he did mention, you know, I um, economic efficiencies were something that he would look at in terms well, of Well, remember that he's following a chancellor who was criticized occasionally for allowing the UT system spend mm-hmm. to grow. Mm-hmm. That was a, a flashpoint for McRaven in the latter part of his tenure as chancellor. And what do we know about the Duncan tenure at Tech? Part of what's been floated as a possible reason for Duncan's exit was there was concern within the system about the degree to which the budget of the Texas Tech spendy, system spendy, had grown. Right. So mm-hmm. this is where we are in Texas right now with right. regard to systems and higher ed. He's coming in at a time when that's definitely all eyes are going to be on that part of it. Right. And, you know, um, one of Regent Kevin Altive, he... I, did a profile on him back in, I think, January. So I've just been kind of following what his task force has been doing, and they're looking at the scope and spending of the system administration. And it seems like just looking at the system budget that was approved in August, it looks like they're looking to downsize it further. So I think that Mr. Milliken is probably going to be looking to, that's the environment he's coming into the UT system with. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, Evan and Ross, fill me in on the uh, latest rounds of debate news we had this week. We had some news on gubernatorial debates, and we had some news on uh, a, a non-debate in the Senate race. So yeah, where are we? It kind of flipped. I mean, you know, for a minute it looked like we weren't going to have any gubernatorial debates and we are going to have a million debates in the Senate race. Uh, Ted Cruz uh, proposed five. Beto O'Rourke proposed six. The first of them was supposed to be tomorrow, um, and they're not going to do that. So... You know, the Senate race looks like they're not having this first one, and there's some question about, you know, are they going to have any, you know, that negotiation is still open. Don't you think they have to debate at least of once? Of course. Yeah, do. but, I, you know, and, and I, think the, I think the thing is flipped here. Usually the idea is that the incumbent in a race is reluctant to debate and has everything to lose and that the challenger really wants to get the traction that a debate might provide. And, and all really that allowing in. the challenger on stage with you does is elevate Build him. Build their name right. ID. Her. And right. the, yeah. the incumbents feel like they're punching down and there's no reason to do that. And, I, you know, this one is a little bit more, you know, punching across and maybe in some ways punching up. I mean, I think in some ways Cruz wants to debate more than O'Rourke does um, at, 
at this moment. Be, be, but I think Cru we are Cruz needs to energize his faithful, demonstrate to his donors and his supporters that he's got the firepower to beat this young whippersnapper. That's the his positioning thing yeah. is okay. If you guys are going to take this guy seriously, you got to show you what a dopey is. Let's get on stage. Well, right. he's in that position. And right? Ted Cruz, I would say, excels in that setting. I mean, right. you know, he'll be up on stage with someone believed to be. Well, you he's know, a master he, debater, isn't he? he? He is a master debater. I mean, he's dangerously close to a Larry David joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll let that go. Don't don't do dirty stuff on do. this podcast, yeah. Ross. Sorry, yes, we've blue. never done that before. <laughs> yeah, that, that would yeah. never happen. Um, uh, the thing the thing is though this. This race has gotten very interesting yeah. day by day. Yeah. You know, the the fact is, I think there are a lot of people, and some of them may be on this podcast, and I would <laughs> possibly count myself as one of those people on this podcast, who six months ago thought, yeah, this race is going to be interesting, and it may be closer, but it's not really competitive. And at the end of the day— Are you now saying I, you think that he could that O'Rourke I'm win? saying that my confidence in my standing prediction that this is Cruz's race to lose— my confidence in that is waning mm. a little bit mm -hmm. because I'm seeing signs out in the world that give me reason to think this race could be more competitive than I've believed. I'm not saying I think Beto's going to win. I'm saying I think it is plausible. You know, it, Are your always, signs out in the world, those, um, those yard signs yard that yard we signs had for $10. Story if you about give today? me $10, I'll tell yes. you. No, this is it. It's the day after test. I always subject myself to the day after bucks. test. Mm -hmm. I look Pretty ahead fun. to the day after the election, and I think of myself waking up in the morning, and so-and-so has won, and does that seem plausible to me? I was never in a place where I thought Donald Trump was going to be president the day after. I could never make myself feel like that was a plausible look ahead into the future. I think that Beto winning the next morning is a little bit more plausible as I imagine it in my mind's eye today mm. than it was three months ago. Right? You know, I, I kind of think, I mean, the reasons have changed a little bit and the, and the stuff has changed a little bit. I, I kind of think the same thing I thought when this started. This is going to be the most interesting race of the year. Jeez, it and is. it's interesting in ways I really didn't imagine. But, you know, part of that is this is a, it's a referendum on Ted Cruz and it's the first time after his presidential race where we really have go to Texas voters and say, what do you think of this guy? Mm -hmm. And you elected him in 2012 over an establishment Republican, David Dewhurst, and upset that year. And, you know, watched him through this race. You, you know, the Trumpies like him and then didn't like him. The Democrats have never liked him. You've got all of this interesting stuff going on. And then you throw a charismatic candidate in on the other side. And in the, you know, up against all the other races on the ballot this year, a, it's, you know, none of the others are really particularly interesting. Sorry, but, you know, and this one is fascinating. Well, this I is but I, but I think the charismatic, I think the charismatic candidate is the X factor for the Democrats this time that they have not had in the past. In the past, they've been perfectly happy to have every race be a referendum on the incumbent up or down, hoping that more people voted down than up. You didn't think Wendy Davis was a charismatic candidate? Well... I do, but there were there were systemic issues with the Davis campaign that we now know looking back. I thought we I knew him while he, we were there. I, well, I, you know what? I think that in the moment, we imagined that more was going on with that race than ultimately was going on. I think I'm prepared to say, based on what we have seen so far, that O'Rourke is the most charismatic, talented on his feet, and empathetic candidate the Democrats have fielded at the upper tier of the ballot since Ann Richards. He may be more empathetic, in fact, than Ann Richards was as a candidate in 90 or 94. But those things in and of themselves don't mean he will or can win. 
could because he it's win all about a, turning people out. Could he win a debate? So, uh, predictions. Could so he win a who debate? Would, so who wins a debate between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke? Back one, to the debate The one who walks out without a bad headline. Well, I mean, that's really, that's really the measure of a debate. Did you, did you score on the other guy? And is everybody talking about how player A or player B messed up? You know, or, or alternately, you know, it, punked the other guy. In some ways, this I'm gets to Ross's. Yeah, in some ways, this gets to Ross's column of this morning. O'Rourke can win in one of two ways. He can win by getting more of his side to turn out than have turned out over the last 20 years, which seems to be a precondition to success. You've got to have that. Or he can win by getting fewer of the other guys' voters to turn out and possibly some of those people to think, I'm going to switch over and vote right. for. Right. For the Democrat. Ross wrote a column today that talked about the possibility, in fact, I think the almost certain likelihood of Abbott Beto voters. If the polls right now, the summer polls are right. right, and the differences between the candidates in the Senate race and the differences between the candidates in the governor's race are on Election Day what they look like in the summer, then you've got some you've right. got some. O'Rourke Abbott voters out there. And if if Abbott is is if Abbott wins this uh, revenue race by twenty and Cruz were to win the Senate race by eight. I don't know how that happens without people who go in and vote for Abbott and then cross over and vote for Beto. Right. Right. I don't think it could possibly be the case right. other than that there are Abbott and Beto voters. So who wins the debate? Well, I think from Cruz's perspective, Cruz really has, like very few Republicans have had to in the last 20 it's years. The Nixon-Kennedy debates all over He has a real need to hold his guys. Mm -hmm. He really has to hold his right. guys. So we have a question from social media. Patrick asks, have we gotten to the point that Cruz needs this debate more than O'Rourke? This is Svitek? Yes. Oh, it's certainly Svitek. Well, this no. is someone named asked him to be on the podcast? <laughs> this is kind of what I was referring to. You know, this is this is in some ways changed the regular math of the incumbent avoiding a debate with the challenger they don't want to give traction to. Mm -hmm. Now, I think Cruz would rather, you know, you know, it's a slight difference, but I think Cruz would rather is probably more in favor of a debate at this instant than O'Rourke. Do you think Cruz underestimated the degree to which this race would be a thing at this point? I mean, a few uh, yeah, several maybe. months ago, probably. I think at this point he knows what he's up against. I, but do you know, but I think he's because I read the story that Abby and Patrick wrote about the yard signs. Yeah, which was amazing. Where the, the Cruz campaign basically is like, we don't like yard signs, so we don't. You know, we haven't. But now we've turned around and ordered twenty five thousand more. But I, I more. wonder if in so, if in that story and in the in the comments by the Cruz team in there, on the one hand, dismissing the importance of yard signs, but at the same time saying, yes, now we're kind of finally- There's 25,000 of yard signs we don't need, right? We're buying I wonder economically, if, yeah. If they're acknowledging, we were caught a little flat-footed by this. I think they didn't know how much the branding would take off. I mean, maybe this is just an Austin what, what thing. What branding? Oh, the Beto branding, the four letters on the black backdrop with the white, I mean, you know, you that you're seeing everywhere. You think it's a visual? He's, you know, Cruz is. It's a stark visual, I think. Cruz has had a really lucky run, both in 12 and to some extent up until the end of the presidential race, and that he's never really been on his heels until like the end of the end of the Trump race. And you know, you remember that was a little bit bumpy. And I think that they're not used to being in this defensive a position. But I, I also don't think I also think Cruz is, has you know. His short history, relatively short history in politics, has been this guy is a planner and a plotter, and I think he's probably thought this through, and, you know, I don't know if I'd say it was unexpected. What does it tell you that the main lines of argument against Beto by the Cruz people so far have been, A, he hates the national anthem enough that he's allowing, he, he, he believes that NFL players should be able to kneel, right. B, he's Nancy Pelosi's puppet, and C, he's not actually Hispanic? 
They're talking to the 20% Robert that are still Francis. out there who don't have an opinion about yep. Beto O'Rourke. They're so trying they're, to give so a negative impression to those 20%. They're trying to sully while, him. While O'Rourke is trying to give a positive impression. There's 20, a, a voter in five, a registered voter in five, doesn't know, doesn't have an impression of this guy yet. And so they're racing to define him, one positively, one negatively. And, and, and the O'Rourke branding, self-branding, right. to this point has largely been, I'm everywhere, I'm going on, a, I'm representing you, I'm talking to you, right. I'm going to support you. And right. so is that positive branding more likely to be successful than the negative branding of him by Cruz? That's the question. That's the race. That's the yeah. next 60 days. All right, a couple of quick follow-up questions on this. First of all, uh, how bad is Valdez going to get, you know, slaughtered in a debate with Abbott? And also, why did Abbott decline to come to the Texas Tribune Festival if he's going to be in Austin that exact same weekend? Who's anyway? asking that? Not John Whitman, presumably. Me, personally. Oh, Greg Abbott has never done an event with the Texas Tribune offline from the festival, right? Since, since, since he's been governor. Since he's been governor. Since governor, right. right. Yeah, I had him at Texas Tribune on stage for an hour when he was when AG. When he was running. running. So did right. I, when he was um, AG. Right. Yeah. You'd have to ask the governor why the governor won't do the Texas Tribune I didn't. I thought he was going to be out invited, of town or something. We have he's, invited him you know. every year. There are certain politicians in the world today who don't like to do this kind of event. So what's the messaging of doing his debate on the exact same weekend as the Texas Tribune Festival? Second and time. And oh, no, yeah. it's the second, it's the second <laughs> right. governor's race in a row. Remember yeah. that the twenty four, the one debate in the 2014 race was also on Friday night of the Tribune Festival. This is yeah. in a plain manila folder marked nanny, nanny, yeah, boo-boo. Right. Right. Well, the right. only debate I really care about is the Dan Patrick-Geraldo Rivera debate. Right. Who, where the big winner will be. Could be outstanding. That should be fun. The big loser will be the viewers of America. Wherever that it, I don't. I frankly makes, don't know. I frankly don't know how this all came to pass. What is, is Geraldo Rivera standing in for Mike Collier as makes, the liberal antagonist of Dan great, Patrick? This is, makes gr- such great sense for Dan Patrick. I mean, you know, I know Dan. I know that uh, Collier doesn't like it, and I know the Democrats don't yeah. like it. But if you're Dan Patrick or you're on his side, this is great. You get to talk about immigration against a media guy. You're not elevating your opponent. What's the loss here? What's the downside? Do you, do you think it's a good thing for voters of this state, leaving the Patrick Geraldo thing out of it or anything else specifically? We really have gone away from being able to, to, to road test different political philosophies or candidates on stage side by side. We love the free market so much in this country. Coke, Pepsi, hamburgers, hot dogs. Right. We want to be given a choice on everything except politics. Why are we being denied the Coke Pepsi taste test? It's a fight over it's not a fight over your choice, it's a fight over your consumer information. You know, these guys don't want to list the contents on the box. That's what that's what not having a debate is, and that's what not doing a lot of public forums is. I'd also like to know the last time you road tested a hamburger or a hot dog. Personally? <laughs> yes. It's a very long time ago. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to um, pivot to get to our next topic, and uh, Emma has a lot to tell us. But uh, before we do, I'd like to thank another TribCast sponsor, Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. All right, Emma, you've been writing of late about a self-described crypto anarchist in Austin. He looks more like a tech bro to me, but uh, who's doing his <laughs> damnedest. There's some overlap. Yes, a lot of overlap, especially in Austin. Uh, he's doing his damnedest to sell what exactly? So this uh, is Cody Wilson, an Austinite. He was told earlier this week by a federal judge in Seattle that he's not allowed to publicly post these sort of blueprints that would allow users to 3D print their own plastic guns without serial numbers. They're totally untraceable. 
So he can't give them out for free, so he's decided to sell them. The blueprints. The blueprints. Okay, but you still, you still need to, the 3D printer. Right, so you still need a 3D. So help me understand this. So if you are one of the very few Americans who has a 3D printer or has access to a 3D printer, these blueprints would, in theory, allow you to stick a bunch of plastic in this thing and come out with a gun that you could actually load bullets into? Exactly. I, the effectiveness of these guns is not, you know, the same as what you might buy at a market or a, a gun show or at Walmart, you know, as the case may be. But I think they work about half half the time. But it's still a pretty... They work about half the time? <laughs> yeah, That's about most half. Most people here at the Tribune. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one, Evan. All right, so... and I'm here all week. <laughs> Unfortunately, two shows on Sunday. Right. If there is no serial, basically, so having no serial number means somebody could build one of these and then just, you know, be using it instead of going through the proper channels of like getting a background check or that kind of stuff, right? And it also means you can walk through a metal detector. Oh, right. Because it's plastic. Because it's plastic. Right. It's John Malkovich in the whatever that movie what was. What is a bullet made out of? Would a bullet not set it off? Rounders? What are you talking about? No, he was doing an assassination attempt on a president. Clint Eastwood was the Secret Service guy, and John Malkovich had a plastic gun. Movies. Ross watches we them. I'll get our inspiration somewhere. I All guess. right, so the takeaway from who's he up against, and what have the, what, is it states who have come out against him? Is it? It's 19 states and the District of Columbia. Texas is not one of the states who's up against him. Texas um, is like those, more plastic guns. It's all those communist states. <laughs> yeah. Well, Texas is kind of walking this difficult line. Um, a spokesman for the attorney general here said, you know, we respect it's a First Amendment right to publish these plans. We also recognize that these are it is. potentially dangerous. It's a First Amendment issue. If you want to publish plans to make a gun. Can you put that? That's could, the that, argument. I mean, if you can want to, you put so, bomb on descriptions so if you, on the internet? If you, if you want to publish plans to make a gun that is designed to elude security measures. That's a First Amendment right? Isn't that, well, isn't that walking up to the edge that's, of yelling fire in a crowded movie That's theater? the argument they're making, though. What's, Line of Fire was the name of that movie, by so the way. So the, the argument people are making, Jeff Sessions, the U.S. Attorney General, has said, we don't support blocking him from publishing the plans, but we will aggressively prosecute people who print these untraceable guns, who use them in crimes. So it's kind of a difficult line for people who are pro-free speech. So it's speech. for entertainment purposes only. What is the rule about publishing instructions of how to make a bomb on the Internet? I mean, you know, I'm not advised. Guns are legal, bombs are illegal would probably be my pushback if, you know, as a 2A person. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious if it is a First Amendment violation to say to somebody you can't. So what have the courts said so far? The court has said you can't make these plans publicly available. The real reason for that is that it's illegal to export any kind of weapons technology to foreign nationals. The argument is, oh, you know, if you post these on, a, on the Internet, any terrorist in any country could access them. Um, but so with the selling plan, the idea is that these are being distributed in a more like planned way and that uh, the lawyer for the 3D gun guy has promised they'll only go to U.S. persons. So he said some line like, I don't. Uh, all right, I'm not going to be the Napster of, of plastic. He's happy to be guns. the iTunes. I'm going to be the yeah. iTunes of uh, 3D g printed guns. Uh, is there any on Napster? Is there, well, it's this whole idea of free versus paid. I mean, is there any sense that the courts are going to intervene on uh, him charging for them? And what's he charging for them? I think it's it's likely that there will be another court challenge. The lawyer made the point to me yesterday. They're being sued in four courts across the country. New Jersey has sued Cody Wilson in state and federal court. 
there's likely to be a challenge to this, but uh, the judge was silent on whether you could sell these plans in his order on Monday. So right now it's an open question. Hmm. Every, everything happens in Texas. Can we just say that? Of yeah. course this guy's here. Sure. That's why you guys started the Texas Tribune. That's right. Um, That's right. Well, I want to jump back to Beto O'Rourke because the media oh can't God, stop talking about him. Uh, allegedly, for a few minutes to hit on this really hilarious piece. You're hitting the, on Beto O'Rourke? I'm not hitting on Beto O'Rourke. Although, uh, according to many of the headlines Ross is going to read, many people in the media are. This is a writer named David Rutz in the Washington Free Beacon. I wish I'd thought of this. Uh, It's called How to Write the Perfect Glossy Profile of Beto O'Rourke. Obviously, this guy's had it up to here with these glossy Beto O'Rourke profiles. So he has these rules with examples, and I would encourage you to go online and look up the examples because they're hilarious, and they're from actual publications. Thankfully, not including the Texas thank Tribune. God, no, thank God, although you, we probably thank you, have, David Rutz. Um, we've probably fallen in that <laughs> trap too. I'm sure, um, but he has these headlines. These are these are fantastic. These are the sort of the make sure you have all of these things in your story. Inspire <laughs> hope and grit with your headline, often with a question. He's like a Kennedy. He sweats. He's charismatic. He has hair. He's a long shot. <laughs> he was in a punk rock band. He uses edgy swear words. We did do that one. Yes. Uh, are there non-edgy swear words? Uh, yeah, there are. Uh, Texas. Tell is me one non-edgy swear word. Ass. Damn. <laughs> Maybe not on the air. <laughs> is ass a non-edgy swear word? Yeah, probably. Yeah. It is now. Jackass. Uh, yeah, That's sure. not edgy. Texas is undergoing demographic changes. These all end with an exclamation point, by the way. Ted Cruz is the worst. Don't forget what happened to Wendy Davis. So those are the rules for writing. Well, you know, most of those things profile. are true. Send them in. He yeah. does sweat like a big guy, I doesn't mean, he? I mean, the language, the language in these he stories does. is like almost identical. You know, down to the his moppy hair and his well, he does look well, like well. The a examples, Kennedy. the examples make all of those things work. If, it's you know just what? Fantastic but he does look like a Kennedy. I mean, what does I that what mean? Does that just mean that he's like young and attractive? No, he looks like Robert Kennedy. He actually he's looks got, like Robert Kennedy. He's got he's got hair on his over his forehead and he has big big. Big teeth. teeth. He looks right. like Robert large, Kennedy. Large I mean, teeth. it doesn't mean he should be senator. It just means <coughs> a he looks like grin. Robert Kennedy. A toothy grin is the line that these stories also. Well, and you see this Joe Kennedy quote in you know like four out of five of these stories that say people in Washington say he's the most Kennedy of all the Kennedys in Congress. Right. You know, it's just I mean, one interesting conversation, possibly for another podcast, is what did he do before he announced for Senate, consequential into Congress? He rode around in a car with Will, Will Hurd. But but right. uh, but somebody uh, not from Texas Truth. who is writing one of these stories or is about to write one of these stories for a glossy magazine. I warned this person that he would probably be the last person in America to write a Beto O'Rourke story published in a You're national too magazine. Late. We were talking about this, and the topic turned to what Beto had done prior to the uh, to announcing that, that he was running for the Senate. What, what was his congressional work product? It was probably about what you'd get out of any other you know one or two term member of Congress. Yeah. Settle. Questions, um, questions from our audience. Cam wants to know, if Beto loses this race, does his momentum in the national spotlight carry him to the 2020 presidential? Oh my God, oh my everybody, God. Everybody, this well, is one this of the is, stories now, right? This they're is always going to be pre- – why, yeah. why not make him pope? Apparently there may be an opening soon, right? <laughs> He's as popular as Christopher Cross was one time. <laughs> Do you that, want to answer the, the guy question? who sang that? That's from the guy who sang "Sailing." Is that like right? Yeah, that exactly. Okay. Had a, you know, won all the Grammys. One demographically, year that's a poof. joke that is going nowhere yeah. in this newsroom. Oh well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, older demographic. The idea is that somehow he's the other in politics. He comes across as authentic. He's young. He's going to be on the Ellen DeGeneres mm. show. Okay, this is weird. He's he's the Trump of the moment. He's the thing that wasn't in politics that nobody was paying any attention to, and boom, well, all of a sudden it's politics. a full pop up. I mean, it's you know. It's, it's one of those things where 
everybody's looking for something different. You know, to the extent that voters are looking for, I don't like the way this is working. Let's get something different in here. I think it's more like the next that's, Bernie. That's what's, di- what, what's different that's about what sold oh, Trump? It's okay, what sold on. Sanders, and mm-hmm. it's what's selling O'Rourke. It's what's different a search about for, him? Search for something new. What's what? different about him? Did then, you see he can skateboard? Oh, right. <laughs> it's true. He shredded that Whataburger parking lot. That's right. <laughs> what, what's different about him? Seriously. Different about him than from... Like, well, Ross said he's different. I'm not mocking that. I'm asking no, genuinely. This what's is a, different? Different in, a, in the sense that this is a new thing. This is somebody who's new, who's not sort of like got all those tire tracks all over him. So he's fresh in he's the fresh. sense that he's novel. He's, he's got all right. the hipsters he's, off he's, their asses. He's new and shiny. One he more. has all the hipsters off and, their asses. And by the and by October twenty first or twenty second, somewhere in there, when we're in early voting stage, either he is going to win with that, or some definition of himself like that, or Cruz is going to win by taking the shine. So off my question thing. is: Is Miles Zuniga going to vote? That's my question. Do you know who that is, Miles no. Zuniga? Do you know who Miles Zuniga is? Yeah. Do you know who Miles Zuniga is? Who's Miles Zuniga? Who's Miles Zuniga? Miles Zuniga is the you lead singer of Fastball. Right? So there's a p- photograph on social media today of Miles Zuniga, who apparently Beto was in Austin yesterday. So the lead singer of Fastball and, mm-hmm. and Beto is, together. <laughs> right. And so it's like that sort of like, you know, edgy rock guy, you know, kind of hipster. You said the hipsters are off their asses for Beto. I want to see whether they, my, my whole thing right. is going to be, Do they are, show are they going to vote? Mm-hmm. Right. right. It's one thing to put a yard sign, $10 are free in your yard. It's another thing to take the spicy Whataburger ketchup logo and put it on the back of your car. It's the third thing to be out at a rally, you know, 1,500 people, Beto sweating and all that. But the big thing is going to be, are they going to vote? The, you know, he's picked up this Voter trope. Turnout, he's picked up this man. Democratic trope that this is not a red state. It's a non-voting state. And all he's done so far is excite the non-voters. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do they remain excited non-voters or do they vote? And that, right. that's really where this is going to turn. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the TribCast every week, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Texas Association of Counties, VRBO, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Ross, Shannon, Emma, and our producers, Bobby and Todd, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas Just do what I do and don't drink. I'm I'm pretty much straight edge at this point.